Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, February 13th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a good weekend and enjoyed the Super Bowl, if that's something that you're into. I had some disappointed in-laws with ties to Philly, but otherwise you really can't ask for a more exciting game. I certainly enjoyed watching it. The halftime show was great, too. Also, if you like the artwork that you saw on the field and in promotions for the game, check out a link that I've included in the description of this episode for more work from Lucinda Hinojos, the Chicana indigenous artist who created all of those graphics. But for now, let's get right into the headlines impacting New Mexicans. A group of New Mexico lawmakers are pushing to raise state alcohol taxes to combat the state's alcohol death rate, the highest in the country. It's an issue we've covered here at New Mexico in Focus in collaboration with New Mexico In-Depth for months now. If House Bill 230 goes through, taxes would go up 25 cents per drink. The proposal would also dedicate an extra $155 million in revenue to support alcohol treatment centers. The bill passed a committee vote 6-4 to four Friday, but it's facing opposition from the national alcohol industry and local breweries. New Mexico now taxes alcohol by the liter or gallon. The amount varies based on the type of liquor, how much is sold, and who it's made by. The former Torrance County clerk is facing possible sanctions from the State Ethics Commission. The commission filed a civil lawsuit against Yvonne Otero, alleging that Otero used her office for personal gain and to exchange favors. The complaint lists a number of infractions, accusing Otero of deleting absentee ballots by attempting to pre-certify ballot tabulators so that she could go on vacation, engaging in intimate encounters in her office during work hours, making open references to illicit drug use, and subjecting subordinate employees to danger and threats for both amusement and coercion. Otero is a Republican elected as Torrance County Clerk in 2020, but the Board of County Commissioners voted to replace her last month. The all-Republican board says Otero went missing from work and abandoned her duties. Linda Jaramillo was appointed in her place to serve as clerk through 2024. New Mexico State University's men's basketball team is suspending its program for the remainder of the season over hazing allegations. The team made the announcement Sunday after the release of a police report that detailed an assault against a teammate in a three-on-one hazing incident. The police report lists alleged false imprisonment, criminal sexual conduct, and harassment. The victim said that the assault began in August and was ongoing throughout the season, including on road trips. The victim said the latest incident happened on January 6th and was sexual in nature. You can read more of those details in the article that we've linked in the description for this episode of the podcast. Chancellor Dan Arvitsu says it's time for the program to be reset as he leaves the university in June after Regents recently chose not to renew his contract. New Mexico is a step closer to codifying abortion rights. Last week, the House Judiciary passed a bill out of committee that would guarantee access to reproductive and gender-affirming health care for anyone in the state. The legislation has gotten some recent attention, including criticism from Republicans who were worried that the bill was too broad. New Mexico and Focus political correspondent Gwyneth Dolan went to the Roundhouse to gain a better understanding of what's inside the bill and what it would mean for New Mexicans if passed. In the following segment, Gwyneth speaks with two lawmakers and an advocate for the bill. In order, you'll hear from the sponsor of the bill, State Representative Linda Serrato, a critic of the bill, State Representative Jennifer Jones, and finally, Marshall Martinez, the Executive Director of Equality New Mexico. Here's Gwyneth. 
Representative Serato, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, we are looking at the Reproductive and Gender Affirming Freedom Act. Um, what kind of health care is involved in that umbrella? What, yeah. what are we talking about? So we're looking at the full spectrum of reproductive health care. And it's really important because from the moment you get pregnant, you want to be able to access prenatal health care all the way through, um, you know, to, to your entire pregnancy. And the reason that matters is that the line between an emergency C-section and a pregnancy and birth plan that goes exactly to plan is, is instantaneous, as so many New Mexican mothers and pe pregnant people know. So we just want to make sure that is fully entailed in there. And then we've also included gender affirming care as well, which is bodily autonomy, uh, and that's included to ensure that people are able to get all of the, the necessary health care they may need as they're looking at their gender identity. And what are some of the examples of what that means? Yeah, so I mean, you know, especially behavior or therapy or, or other understandings, what we do know about gender-affirming care is that it is suicide prevention. And when uh, young people especially are recognized, it significantly reduces their numbers of, of uh, drug use, uh, suicide rates. It really helps them feel like they're part of a community. And that's what we're really about in New Mexico is that everyone can do their things, but it's important that they feel embraced by our communities. So aren't people already free to do all of these things? Like, why do we need a law to protect this? Yeah, so I often talk about when I was pregnant with my first, I had uh, gestational diabetes. And the last uh, six to eight weeks, you go in twice a week for just a 20-minute ultrasound, make sure everything's good. And I was meeting, and this was here in Santa Fe, and I was meeting women that came from hour-plus commutes. They were coming all the way from Taos and beyond because they couldn't get this kind of basic prenatal care. So already, access is difficult here. We don't want to add fear on top of it or confusion about the what the laws are. And additionally, we know in New Mexico that people, you know, may live in Chavez County, but they go to Sandoval to get health care. And we want to make sure there's no question about when they're making the best decisions for their health and their family's health, and they're doing that with their doctors, they're not scared that when they go home, they're going to be persecuted or prosecuted. So do we have evidence that this persecution and prosecution is happening? You know, we have examples from other states about how a lot of this is coming out. Um, I, uh, have a couple of friends that had to have uh, abortions later in pregnancy, and for them it was a tragedy. Um, they went home to empty nurseries, and um, that was very difficult uh, for them. But they were able to get the health care they needed, and they were able to have babies later. And that made their, you know, that was what they needed. I think some of the cases we're seeing come out of Texas, these folks end up having hysterectomies. And that's very difficult to, to completely alter the plan they had. So again, this is about ensuring that people are not scared to get the health care they need. And what happens if you do not succeed in making this law? Yeah, thank you. I think one of the biggest concerns is that we're going to have just this checkerboard of health care laws and policies and how they're applied to people. And again, eight out of 10 maternal deaths are preventable. Um, we need to know that, that we're not scared to get the health care to ensure that we're reducing that number of, of maternal deaths. Representative Serato, thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Representative Jones, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. The sponsor of the bill earlier today told us that this is about protecting access to health care. She spoke as a mom about her own pregnancies, about protecting access to health care from prenatal care to childbirth, uh, birth control and abortion and gender affirming care. Um, is this how you see this bill in terms of protecting access to care? I think that I understood that they that was their intent, but I think uh, there's so much more to this bill and it was so broad that it was not really clear that that was the extent of it. It seemed much more vague and much more broad and I think the questions weren't really answered in terms of, of protection, as she was saying. So what are your concerns? I represent people um, and of course this bill uh, would, have, would 
affect everyone in New Mexico, not just my constituents, but I, I heard from hundreds. Uh, if you include um, the signatures, uh, over thousands of people that were very concerned and even opposed to this bill because they thought it was so broad and it would, it would cause people who were um, paid by the state in any capacity to be unable to um, to have the freedom to not be involved or be involved in uh, perhaps their students' uh, concerns or issues and uh, that, that they might somehow be held accountable for something that they felt was really wrong. There's a difference between being forced to do something and being prevented from interfering. And is that a meaningful distinction for you? Well, of course that's meaningful. I think the possibility of being prosecuted either way and about how unclear that was, uh, because not only would a person be um, uh, subject to a $5,000 fine, but all of the court costs, et cetera, it, it leaves it pretty broad and open as to what a person would be liable for if they either did or did not do what the state was mandating in the bill, which was unclear. So you are a nurse, you have experience in healthcare, um, does that give you more insight than the average person into how things like this work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, I just have a, a great deal of respect for the freedom, our individual freedoms, and, uh, and I do know what families go through, what children go through, especially children, which I feel like we focused on in the committee. Um, as a pediatric nurse for many years in all all areas of pediatrics I just I have a special heart for kids and their families and I want to make sure that um, they do receive the care that they need and uh, that at the same time that they're not required for, by the state to either do or some or not do what uh, they feel is wrong. The sponsor told us in terms of the gender affirming care part of it, she was very blunt. She said, this is about suicide prevention. She said, um, when young people get this care, they are less likely to um, have severe psychological issues and try to kill themselves. Does that resonate? Is, th is that something that's important to you? Of course it is, um, absolutely. Um, I, I would like to see that research. I think that um, there's that there are all sorts of things that young people experience in growing up that that cause them um, mental trauma. You know, um, and I, I I know that certainly you know being uncertain about their gender is one of them. How that really affects um, how that plays out in research is is a question for me. I think I know also of people and it was. It was discussed in the uh, in the committee that there are there's the other side too of those who did receive uh, the gender affirming care, who felt like it was not the right thing in the end, and have turned around the other direction. So there's kind of both sides there to look at, and I would like to see more research on that. I think it's hard to say that with um, as little time that's gone by. You know, it, it, we need to look. That's one thing we'll, we'll be looking at in the future. Marshall Martinez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We are trying to figure out how this bill really works. Help us understand, would this require anyone to participate in health care, abortion, uh, 
birth control, gender affirming care that they don't agree with. Would it force them to do that? No, absolutely not. And in fact, healthcare providers always have the ability to refuse to provide care that they disagree with, to refer a patient uh, to another provider, and also it should be noted that healthcare providers only provide the kind of care they're trained to provide. What this bill does is ensure that local governments, public entities don't stop people from accessing the healthcare they need. And so who are the kind of workers that we're talking about? I mean, people are like, is this me? Is this the job that I do? What are, what are we talking about here? Doctors, nurses? Yeah, we're talking about therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, right? We're talking about behavioral health specialists. We are talking about some physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, physicians assistants. Teachers? Uh, we've been hearing teachers, school nurses, guidance counselors, those folks don't provide health care. And this bill is not going to require anyone to provide health care that they're not trained to do. We expect teachers to create a safe classroom for their students and educate them. We expect school nurses to handle emergencies. We expect guidance counselors to be there for students to answer questions, to listen to them. Those folks should all refer them to folks in their community, the resources that they might need. But this bill in no way asks a teacher or anyone else who isn't normally a healthcare professional to suddenly provide healthcare. So if I'm a school nurse who does not believe that abortion is the right thing to do for a teenager and they ask me to how they can get information or help about it, would this require me to give them that information? No, this bill would just require that that school nurse answer questions honestly. Um, and we think and we hope that those school nurses, regardless of their own personal beliefs, would refer that young person to the resources that exist in their community. Um, and it's really important to know that what we're saying is we don't want school districts, counties, cities to say this type of healthcare is not allowed here or we will stop folks from accessing this healthcare. There seems to be some confusion about what gender affirming healthcare means. Um, for those of us at home who are kind of trying to wrap our, our minds around it, what are some examples? What does that mean? Gender affirming healthcare almost always starts and maintains the mental and behavioral healthcare. When we send trans folks, especially young trans folks, to access gender affirming care, what we mean is giving them access to a therapist, uh, to a psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, licensed counselor who will affirm their identity and help them process what it means to live in this world and the trauma that many trans people experience in this world with the lack of understanding and the stigma around trans folks. So we immediately hear all of these ideas about <laughs> surgeries and all of the, and some folks access medical care, but not every trans person accesses surgical care. Not every trans person wants medical care, including prescriptions. What we know every trans person wants, needs, and deserves is behavioral and mental health care. To be in a safe space where their identity is affirmed, where they can work out what that means, um, and how to walk through this world on a daily basis. And it should be noted that gender-affirming healthcare is suicide prevention. What we know is that this is the number one indicator that a young trans person will live into adulthood without attempting or successfully committing suicide. Giving them access to life-saving, gender-affirming care, which is almost always behavioral and mental health care first. This past week on the show, our line opinion panelists also chimed in on House Bill 7, targeting reproductive rights and gender-affirming care. Our panelists this time are University of New Mexico law professor Serge Martinez and former New Mexico state senators Dee Dee Feldman and Diane Snyder. Here's New Mexico in Focus host, Gene Grant. Now let's talk through the legislation on the table here. As Gwyneth explained, House Bill 7 would stop counties and municipalities 
from preventing public access sorry, to reproductive or gender-affirming health care. It would not force anyone who was religiously or morally opposed to actively participate in any form of that care. That's important. Now, the bill would also overrule local abortion ordinances that have been created since the Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. Now, in places like Lee and Roosevelt counties, Hobbs, Clovis, and Eunice, opponents of this bill have said this would remove the rights of local governments to govern. Is this legislation the way we should address this on the state level? Serge Martinez, let me ask you. It's a very fundamental question, whether local municipalities should have the right to decide for themselves versus the state. Where do you come down on this? Um, in this case, this is easy, right? It's a fundamental right here in New Mexico to, you know, the right to privacy, the right mm -hmm. to health care. That doesn't stop when you cross the city line or cross the county line, okay. right? States have the, have the authority to preempt, you know, municipalities from mm -hmm. imposing, from doing laws in lots and lots and lots of areas. Mm -hmm. This one, which is so fundamental and so clearly a right in New Mexico, I think the legislation is superfluous, it, right? The, these laws are unenforceable, I think. But, you know what, it, I, I applaud the legislature if it, you know, put, passes this for mm -hmm. saying, you know what, just to remove any doubt, right? New okay. Mexicans have these rights no matter where they go in the state okay. and no matter what the local folks are saying. Mm -hmm. Didi, I'm curious where you think this should come down to. Is this uh, overstepping the rights of local municipalities? I know you're strong on, you know, local communities having their say on things, but what about it in this case? Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure that re this really is a local issue okay. uh, because there is one man that is going around the country uh, encouraging these municipalities, uh, often in border areas, to enact these ordinances mm -hmm. simply to get a nationwide abortion ban and to, to create a court case mm -hmm. that then maybe can work its way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, it's just a, it's another example for me of how much um, uh, discord uh, between states, between parties, the Dobbs decision really created. Um, and so now we're talking about local versus state and state versus state. Um, you know, that's the, that's the legacy that's right. of the Dobbs decision. That's right. And we're going to be living with it for some time. Yeah. Interesting. Senator Snyder, the bill, uh, this is an interesting point here. The bill would allow the state attorney general or a DA the right to initiate a civil lawsuit in district court if they feel a government body has acted to deny or prevent the legal right to, to obtain reproductive health care services. And a fine could be charged up to $5,000. I'm curious how that hits you in your gut. Do we need the DA looking over people's shoulders on this? I, it just something just seems... A little heavy-handed here, but I'm, I'm wondering where you might be coming down on this. Uh, I have several things, uh, yeah. great concerns about this. One is the very initial thing. I, I'm very much a Jeffersonian, and I believe that in, in the rights of the of the local, you know, politics is is at the is in the community. That's where you are. Mm -hmm. We're not the same in every part of our state. Mm -hmm. Our beliefs are different. Um, so does the state, I mean, the state legally has the right to say, you can't do this, we're right. taking away your power to do it. Right. Uh, same thing they can do with school boards, et cetera. But analogy. what I've, I, in doing a little research on this though, the thing I found so interesting is New Mexico is very much a blue state, democratic, very progressive. Mm -hmm. Texas, our next door neighbor, is a red state. 
very conservative, very much Republican controlled. And yet, the city of Austin, which by the way, abortions are illegal in the state of Texas, mm -hmm. all kinds of little things, I'm not, not going into the details, but the city of Austin, uh, uh, municipal leaders, they're city councilors, I think they call them also, and they are, what they're doing is they're adopting non-enforcement regulations or non-prosecution regulations or um, because they can't tell an entity that you, you have to break the law, the state law, but what you can do is you can say, okay, we're determining that when you go out to for an emergency or to enforcement, pardon me, enforcement, looking for and following up on uh, the story or the actions or the whatever, that concerns about abortion are down at the very bottom. Mm -hmm. So that you don't, you're not following, you're not going to be then go on to be prosecuted for it and, and that you, they're telling their DAs, county, attorneys, et cetera, is this will be your priority way, way gotcha. down on the bottom gotcha. so that they can continue to have the safe abortion services right. in, uh, in, in Austin. Austin. Yeah. Uh, it's just a reversal of what's in, in New Mexico. Yeah. That's right. Yes, it is, it is, the, because. They're so fundamentally different. The idea of um, these places in New Mexico are saying you there's a fundamental right that the New Mexico State Constitution gives you, and we're saying you don't have it in our town, right? Versus in Austin, Texas, you don't have a fundamental right to have your neighbor get in trouble for having an abortion, right? Which is really what is being taken away by the, the you know, Austin saying we're not gonna enforce this. It's still a state law. Mm -hmm. It's still, in, you know, and I don't know Texas law well enough to know who enforces it, but you know, Texas state law doesn't go away just because Austin isn't well, enforcing it. Whereas, yeah, but, let me ask, let me but if we keep moving in that direction, mm -hmm. then passing the, the cannabis laws we passed are not legal because the federal government still says they're not. It is an, a, a drug that is not on the list of being able to be prescribed. It's still a type three. Yes, right, so three it, I mean, offense, yeah. it, to me, mm -hmm. it's what the point I'm trying to make here is it's looking for other ways to promote your personal opinion. And it doesn't matter whether you're a red state and the blueies are trying to change the, this through their process, legal process, or whether you are a blue state mm -hmm. and the red, red counties are trying to do it. Mm -hmm. Let me ask uh, Senator Feldman, interesting, a uh, lot of activity down south about this, local anti-abortion ordinances we're seeing Stand behind the 1873 Comstock Act. Now, before you're at home running to your phone, what you can do, you can double screen. That's the way we live life right now. You can look this up. But basically, uh, this, the stance is, Senator Feldman, that sending medical, medical equipment for abortions violates a 150-year-old federal statute that states it's illegal to send anything obscene, immoral, or indecent through the mail. And that includes birth control pills. There you go. And that includes uh, the day after pills. Yeah. And uh, this is why I think they are um, relying on this obscure federal law yeah. to try to force a lawsuit, mm -hmm. to try to get a nationwide prohibition in all states, mm -hmm. which, uh, which many women rely on 
stuff coming through the mail. Right. Um, and if That's they right. can interfere with interstate commerce in that way, uh -huh. uh, then they can uh, ban abortion nationwide, and that's what they would like to do. Interesting. That just goes to my point, though, Please. that whichever side you're on, whichever stand you're taking, you're going to search and look for every possible method or a way to get your opinion and your beliefs in place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's where we look to the law. And yeah, well. <laughs> right. well, on that point, if this bill is passed uh, and abortion is codified, does that end the conversation about reproductive rights here in New Mexico? I mean, besides pushback from anti-abortion people, if this passes? There's a, there's a lot of layers no, here. I, I agree with <laughs> Diane on right. that. It will not end everything. it. It will not right. end it's it for sure. One more door closed. Now, just if one it more. was in the Constitution, yeah. it yeah. might be a different uh, story. Uh, it might yes. be a different story. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. So. Serge, your thought on that? I'm interested to... Oh, no, I mean, yeah. Texas is still going to be our neighbor, and, you know, these things down south are a lot of ways. Texas trying to make sure that its law mm -hmm. creeps over the border into New Mexico. Also, mm -hmm. another city is Tucson, so it's ah, both right. sides That's of right. That's and, right. Yeah, we're, you know, it's these... No, there's no end to the creativity and tenacity of people who are trying well, to Well, let me go back to something Senator Feldman mentioned about who was behind this and all the activity. Um, what happens if House Bill 7 were to pass, could this eventually escalate beyond to the state Supreme Court? As you mentioned earlier, is that the goal here? Is they get a Supreme Court case? Well, I'd, I think the Attorney General is already involved yes, with yes. it. And um, he, he is uh, trying to prevent these local ordinances as a violation of state law. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that will continue. I'm not sure that House Bill 7 will be challenged uh, in court. I think it would probably be uh, something else that right. would, would be challenged. That's right. Let me m mention, I'm glad you mentioned Raul Torres, New Mexico Attorney General, uh, Senator Snyder. He, Ask the state Supreme Court to consider the matter. Yes. He sees where the end game is going, and it's interesting here. Uh, would it matter to you if it went to the Supreme Court, and would you have a prediction about how it would fall if it, it actually went that far? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't object. Yeah. I think that it, it, the, the method, again, the process, mm -hmm. is we, which again, of all issues, if you're going to the courts, you're, you've got two, two different sides. And so the process is there for anyone to use. So I do not object to the, the process of going to the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that uh, Mr. Torres will run into some conflicts in, uh, uh, for, with county attorneys and, right. and others that he affiliates with. I but, can't help but smile a little bit in yeah. understanding of Mr. Torres running for statewide office. Like, here we are. <laughs> you know, now you get this little tiny thing you got to deal with. Thanks to Gene and the panel. You can watch their other two discussions from this past week online right now. They talk through the effectiveness of new alternative policing tactics in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, and the growing shortage of doctors and medical professionals in New Mexico as a whole. That's all on the New Mexico in Focus YouTube page. Right now here on the podcast, an update on a key court case mandating major changes in how our state educates its most vulnerable students. The Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund represents Luis Martinez, one of the lead plaintiffs in the Yazi Martinez lawsuit. New Mexico and Focus correspondent Russell Contreras recently caught up with MALDEF's president and general counsel to talk about the ongoing state response to that historic ruling. 
Thomas, thank you for joining us again here on New Mexico in Focus. Happy to be here. It's been 11 years since the fight that we now call Martinez Yazi started. First off, give us a quick reminder what this battle is about and what's the update? Basically, the case is about the right to an equitable and adequate education in the New Mexico public schools. So ever since the United States Supreme Court half a century ago concluded that the U.S. Constitution does not treat education as a fundamental right, we have been left with raising challenges like this in state court under state constitutions. So in New Mexico, the Martinez case is the case that established that under New Mexico's state constitution, there is a constitutional right to an adequate and equitable education. So where we are today is after a lengthy trial in which the state court did conclude there was a violation of that right under the New Mexico state constitution in the current New Mexico public school system. So the question since then has been about the adequacy of the remedy for that violation. So the state legislature has acted to increase some of the funding for public education to make other reforms. And really what's going on now is a lengthy determination through evidence gathering, through testimony of whether the problem has been solved or not, or whether there remains a violation of the New Mexico Constitution. And the case was brought, as you know, on behalf of students who really were not receiving an equitable education in New Mexico public schools. And that includes uh, those with special education, includes Latino students, it includes Native students, it includes making sure that all students receive an equitable opportunity to succeed in public schools. Now at this point, this battle, these lawsuits have gone through a Republican administration and a Democratic administration. Both have fought these lawsuits. From your perspective, what are they missing in continuing to fight these lawsuits, appeal, and keep them in the court system? I think what they're missing is the importance of education to New Mexico's economy. So a lot of times, regardless of party, and not just in New Mexico, but in other states, uh, these cases result in debates about money, how much money can be expended on education. And it's very short-sighted not to understand that an investment today in ensuring an equal and equitable, an equitable and adequate education for all students pays off in the future in the economy with more students who graduate well-prepared to do the jobs of the 21st century, well-prepared to innovate, well-prepared to advance the economic progress of the entire state. So it's often a failure to see the long-term economic benefits and instead making decisions based on short-term budgetary concerns. On that note, I've talked to Democratic lawmakers. They've told me, look, I, I believe the goals of these lawsuits, but we can't let the courts decide something that we can't afford. It's a, uh, this is a very similar argument that we've heard before, that this needs to be done legislatively. What's your reaction to that? Well, unfortunately, the legislature hadn't met its constitutional obligation under New Mexico's constitution. And in that circumstance, the courts have to intervene. Now, the courts are not dictating how much money is to be spent or even specifically how it is to be spent. But both of those play some role in determining whether there is an ongoing constitutional violation or it has been remedied. 
which means the courts have to look at. Is there an adequate investment for all students in the state? And they have to look at are the right mechanisms to monitor, document, and then remedy any continued disparities, discriminations in New Mexico's public schools. So I wish that the historical track record of the legislature here and in other states was such that they had demonstrated the ability to address the imperative of providing an adequate and equitable education to all students. But that is not the track record. So courts have to intervene to ensure that the New Mexico Constitution, the voice of the people who ratified it, is reflected in an ongoing way in the education system. On that note, with the passage of the Constitutional Amendment Number 1, freezing up, freeing up more money for public education on top of other funding advancements and a massive oil and gas surplus we have in New Mexico, is there a lack of money? Is that argument against responding to the needs highlighted in this lawsuit? Because we have all this going on. One would assume that this could be easily solved. Well, what you're pointing out is it's not always, it's always a matter of where to spend the money that's available. It's a matter of priority setting. Is education going to be the top priority? These recently enacted measures are certainly an indication of progress that the voters of New Mexico believe that education should be a, if not the, top priority. But the debate about economic constraints is always about where the money that's available should be allocated. Should it be allocated to schools or should it be allocated elsewhere in terms of the many government functions? So again, these measures are an important indication that the people believe that education should be the priority, including allocating additional resources to solve the problem of providing an equal and adequate education for all students. Now, Chicano pioneer and scholar George I. Sanchez here in New Mexico wrote about inequality in the state in 1940 with his book, The Forgotten People. It appears some of the complaints in these lawsuits are going back to his critique almost a century ago. Why is it that New Mexico, after all these years, all these decades, cannot wrap its head around equality and equity for Mexican-American and Native American students in the state? Well, I think we have the long-term legacy of discrimination against those two groups and others that was so built into the system 100 years ago, built into the system ever since. When something is systemic, it's very hard to root it out. And what we have in this circumstance is a failure of some of the main mechanisms of accountability to take part. I place a lot of the blame, and it's not just in New Mexico, it's nationwide, on the decision, which will be 50 years old this year, by the United States Supreme Court out of the neighboring state of Texas when the justices by a narrow majority concluded that education is not a fundamental right under our federal constitution. When they reached that decision, it essentially meant that the federal government would not play a significant role in ensuring equal opportunity in education, as it does in other arenas. And ironically, as it had in the foundational civil rights case of Brown versus Board of Education, which was about educational equity. And yet, in 1973, they withdrew 
from playing a major role. That then made it possible for those systemic, deeply rooted problems to continue and be perpetuated through decade and decade up to today. So this again is not a problem solely in New Mexico. It is really a problem with public education across the country because we have these deeply rooted systemic inequities and then we have not allocated the right resources, players, mechanisms to ensure that that systemic problem can be solved. In a web extra you'll only find on our New Mexico in Focus YouTube page, Russell also asked about MALDEF's position when it comes to banning certain curriculum in the name of critical race theory. Thank you to Russell, Gene, our panelists, and all of our guests on the podcast this week. Coming up Friday on the show, Our Land senior producer Laura Pascas talks with journalists from Source New Mexico about their new series, Crisis on the Rio Grande. They share insight on the state of the river, the ongoing regional drought, and they have some beautiful and thought-provoking images to share, too. That's New Mexico in Focus this week, Friday night at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. And stay with New Mexico in Focus throughout the week with our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram for updates and other news items leading up to our show. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, February 13th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.